into the cellar where the door's just opened on its own. Give us a sign that you want to communicate with us. What are you guys? Well, we've been called ghost hunters, paranormal researchers. But we prefer to be known simply as Ed and Lorraine Warren. There's someone here that would like to talk to you. There's something horrible happening in my house. It's November 1st, 1971. I'm sitting here with Carolyn Perrin, who, with her family, has been experiencing supernatural occurrences. You picking up anything in here, hon? Something awful happened here, Ed. What is it? Whatever Lorraine sees, feels, touches, it takes a toll on her. A little piece each time. You have a lot of spirits in here, but there's one that I'm most worried about because it is so hateful. That's not gonna help. This thing has latched itself to your family. Father, we never seen nothing like this. I'm coming with you. No way. I can't lose you. There's a lady in a dirty nightgown that I see in my dreams. She's standing in front of my mom's bed. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering all the franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my fantastic co-host, Lindsay Travis. Lindsay, how are we? Hi, I'm good. Um, I probably say this most times, but I'm really excited that we're doing The Conjuring. I know. (laughs) Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler, you know, if you happen to like seen the title, or, you know, the social media posts where we advertise it, you know, right. if you're just coming into this blind, if you just randomly stumbled upon this podcast somehow out of the <laughs> we are covering yeah. a new franchise, uh, the seven, now seven films. So it's the summer of the conjuring, basically. Isn't it eight? I think it's eight. Do you, do you count the curse of Lorona? So, yeah, I think so. 
we're covering the eight films of the conjuring series. Maybe we'll skip one, who knows? Maybe. Because I know that like it, it I don't know. They say it's not part of the same universe, but Oh. Well, I have a review but, to edit. Yeah. I think <laughs> it is. I think you're right. I think I actually think you're right. I think like what happened was the movie wasn't getting great reviews and they're like oh it's technically not part of this billion dollar franchise yeah i mean that's fine with me it's only one i haven't seen and i'm i'm okay not changing that so maybe what we could do is a curse of larona versus la larona which i heard is excellent yeah do something a little different oh i like that idea booking on the fly i love it this is what happens this is how we do it it. all right but we have a guest with us tonight returning to the show for the third time technically because he was also a fantastic henry bowers when we did our it script reading we have the host of the bloody blunts podcast devon taylor mr taylor how are we tonight i'm doing great thanks for having me back um i'm very excited as well for the movies that we're talking you know we're a uh, second episode of you know episode of the podcast proper and it's another one of my like all-time favorites there you go that's what we like that's you know we are always happy and that's one of the things we try to do when the show is bring people on that love these movies because i think that's a much more enjoyable experience than Eh, here's a movie we're kind of like so so on let's all like this is a two and a, you know there's probably like a great podcast idea in like the three star podcast and it just reviews movies that are like three stars like there's yeah. probably something really good in there but you know that is not us so but that's our idea and you can't have it um oh god i can't do another show <laughs> can, you can take it are you, cre- are you, you, you know that that's a hard no what are you trying to do to me right now? <laughs> no yeah. Um, a few no months shows. ago, I had an idea of like doing a music-based podcast, and I'm like, I want to listen to music with like these people that I'm friendly with on the internet, and we all got really excited. And then I'm like, I can't fucking do this right now. There's no time. There's just no time, people. There's um, no time. But we are here to talk 2013 film from director James Wan, which kicked off a Marvel-esque cinema universe when it comes to horror movies. Probably like I'm trying to think. The first of its type since like maybe Hammer Horror. I can't think of a lot of other, maybe even Universal, really Universal monsters. Yeah, I mean definitely Universal monsters because there were all the like Frankenstein mm-hmm. versus the Wolfman things. I want to yeah. say this is like a pretty unique situation. Yeah, and I love it. Oh, I was gonna say. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's very unique in its way. And even though you know the uh, the newer Dark Universe didn't work out, I mean. This is this is pretty close, you know. Ed and Lorraine are kind of like the Van Helsing of this uh, universe. Yeah, that's a good point. Van Helsing, I love that. Yeah, it's definitely superhero-esque in the way that they are presented. Um, but there is a lot that went into making this movie. And like, Lindsay, I think you have a bit on the background of what went into making The Conjuring. You want to take that, take it from the top there? Yeah, so I mean, this is certainly one that we definitely attribute to James Wan. I mean, he's coming off of Saw, and we really think of these as like Wan pictures, but they went through a pretty big um, production hall before they got to him. So someone named uh, Tony DeRosa Grund wrote the treatment um, and gave it its title. Apparently, he took about 14 years trying to get it made. Uh, It initially ended at Gold Circle Films, um, which is the production company behind The Haunting of Connecticut, which is interesting because The Haunting of Connecticut is also based on a Warren 
uh, case file is a little bit more loose than, well, arguably <laughs> as loose, but some people say uh, a little bit more loose of a connection to the Warrens as the conjuring. Um, but yeah, so it would have made a lot of sense. Uh, that didn't happen. Eventually, um, there are a few other producers brought on board to refine the script, um, and they ended up using the treatment, the original DeRosa Grunt treatment, and the Ed Warren tapes. They changed the story's point of view, basically from the Perone family to the Warrens. The initial treatment was from the um, point of view of the family, which is what I think is what was more like in The Haunting of Connecticut and the Amityville movies, which again were based on Warren case files, which we'll get into a bit. Um, so this uh, is what changed it to the Warren's point of view, which I think is what makes it very uniquely The Conjuring. Um, and then um, after around 2009, uh, there was a six studio bidding war. It ended up at Summon, uh, Summit Entertainment. Uh, Droza Grund uh, and Summit could not conclude the transaction. It ended up going into a turnaround. And eventually when he reconnected with New Line, who did not get it in the initial bidding war. Uh, New Line ended up grabbing it. Um, and then New Line is who has The Conjuring now, still. So it went through a six studio bidding war in mid-2009. Would that be right around the time that people realized Paranormal Activity was going to be a massive hit, you think? I mean, I guess so. That would make sense. Uh, they're probably like, I mean, I know you got some pretty cool notes about like where horror, like where horror mm -hmm. kind of went at this time. And I would venture to guess that this was, you know, probably based a lot on, okay, what's the next big thing? Yeah. yeah. Plus the Insidious, it, the first Insidious came out at 2010. Yeah. And Insidious, like that's one of my favorite um, supernatural horror movies. And it feels very much like a trial run. For because it's done, I think like Insidious is made on a million bucks. Like it's definitely done for not a lot of money. And this one gets a bit more of a budget behind it. It feels like it's like the demo tape for what the conjuring would become. Like everything that Insidious does, the conjuring does on a little bit more of an epic and grand scale. Yeah, I yes, because they're so different, like one being a period piece and one being modern, but totally the like style of scare and the universe creation all feels really similar. Yeah. And just the, the tone, the fact that you focus on the family, uh, that you have like the ghost busting unit or like the go paranormal ghost hunters that are in it. Like it just, it, and even the way, um, it, I guess we'll talk about it when you get into the scares, but it feels like the way that Juan depicts the supernatural world. Uh, he brings back, like, even though it's not called the further in this movie, mm -hmm. it very much feels like it. It's in that and even more so in The Conjuring 2 with the opening of that movie. Um, yeah. So it does feel like a bit of a trial balloon to see. But horror is like, it, it's in an interesting place when The Conjuring comes out. 2013 is kind of one of those pivotal years. We talked a little bit about this when... Uh, we talked about the Evil Dead with Matt Donato a couple weeks ago. And Donato um, raised the point that the Evil Dead is really like the last of those really like gnarly, nasty, almost mean-spirited in its tone horror movies that had kicked off in 2003 or four with Saw and it continued through with films like Hostel, Wolf Creek, um, you know, you get a, a almost decade long run where horror has a 
predominantly nasty tone to it. Um, that had wound down at this point. And even by this time, like Paranormal Activity had come out in 2009. It made a bajillion dollars. Um, and it cost about as much as, you know, a pretty good like hybrid car. Um, yeah. Great return on your investment. But at this time, like <laughs> Blumhouse is cranking out hit after hit. And they have like a real, like they have a model where it's basically, we're not going to give you a lot of money, but as a creator, you can do whatever you want. And you're going to, we're going to get really high returns in return for that. So after Insidious, which Juan co-wrote with his um, screenwriting partner, Lei Wanao, like this is the first one he does, horror movie he does without Wanao. Um, and everything just feels a little bit bigger. And it, again, it feels like Insidious is all over this movie, but it's an interesting period that there's found footage movies uh, that are starting to hit there are a lot more like supernatural themed horror, like the paranormal activity films, the uh, last exorcism titles like that are kind of like in the zeitgeist at the moment. Like that's where I like hold this movie in like high regard, like where I hold this movie in high regard is that it kind of felt like it was like, it, like you said, like it was that pivotal year where, you know, we were kind of going away from like, uh, I guess, like, premise-based horror and, like, horror that was, like, yeah, more mean-spirited and stuff. It was, like, this was, like, okay, we're kind of, we're focusing on, like, human stories again because I felt like this movie, you know, put so much attention into the family and Ed and Lorraine's relationship as well. And so it was kind of a turning point in that element, but then also it was, like, this was, like, one of the movies that it was, like, hey, go see this in theaters again. Like, people were coming back out to the theaters because I think, you know, there was a period of time in those late aughts in the early 2010s where people were kind of like a little stale on horror and they just knew that the stuff that coming to theaters wasn't, you know, going to be the best. Like, you know, obviously independent horror was still putting stuff out, but like as far as like horror bringing people into theaters, I felt like this was a turning point in that aspect as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. This is definitely it makes the case for like, see this in front of as many people as possible. And I know that like the third movie, which is now out is doing that hybrid thing where it's on HBO max, but it's also playing in theaters right now. And that, and along with a quiet place Two, are like the two movies that like studios are banking on to get people like back into theaters and start kind of normalize going to the movies again. And, you know, it's interesting that what we're looking for are horror movies to um, horror movies to really bring, you know, things back in. So it's pretty neat. So, Devon, um, here's something you've never been asked before. Um, what was the first time you saw The Conjuring? And like, what was it like the first time you saw it? Like, what was your experience with it? Um, what, the first time I remember seeing it, it was back in, you know, 2013 and around that time was when I'd like just found like independent film, like being able to like, you know, seek out and watch smaller films and stuff. So I really wasn't going to the theater as much at the time and especially not for horror movies, just cause a lot of the horror movies at that time I was like, eh, a lot of these I can just like watch at home. They're not as like motivational for me to like go see in the theater. 
but you know everybody was talking about this movie how fun it was and like how scary it was you know and like gotta see it in the dark theater you know so i was like oh okay i was like haven't heard people excited about a horror film in theaters you know like that and like in a while just at that time um so i remember me and my me and my uh, sisters went to go see it and uh, we just had a blast it, it was a little bit later so it wasn't a packed theater but it was like us and we were just like having you know super fun and they loved it so much we ended up like seeing it again with our mom like a week later um just because it was like such a like fun experience like it was like no we don't want you to wait for it to you know come out in a few months like we we want you to see it now we want you to see it you know in this setting so it's like it, it definitely did like was one of the first times like i'd felt that again yeah Oh, I would 100% agree. Like, I got to catch this at, like, a hybrid, like, press screening slash sneak preview. So I got to go in because I was, like, covering it for my site at the time. But it was, like, a packed, packed theater of, like, horror fans and uh, journalists in uh, at the theater near Fenway Park in downtown Boston. And it was probably one of the rowdiest crowds I've ever seen a movie with. But it, they were rowdy in, like, the best possible way. Like, it wasn't a crowd that was like, I'm going to sit on my phone and talk over in the movie. Like, they were like, don't you go down those stairs, you know, like, screaming at the screen and, like, ooing and aring at, like, the right moment. And I think, like, when the um, Bathsheba, like, appears on top of the armoire, like, someone just let out a super loud, like, oh, shit. <laughs> and, like, the theater, like... It's those great moments and like in watching a horror movie when like you break out into laughter to relieve the tension. Like to this day, it probably remains maybe like a top five theatrical viewing experience for horror movies. Like it was just I can't stress enough like how much fun it was. And it just it hit like this movie is going to be huge. Um, it's just way too much fun to kind of ignore. Um, how about yourself, Lindsay? Oh, my gosh. I love both of your stories so much. <laughs> Um, I think I saw this in theaters. I distinctly remember seeing all the rest of them in theaters. So I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. I saw this one in theaters too. Um, yeah, I mean, if I'm remembering the chronology correctly, I would have seen Insidious first, which I loved. Um, and I like, I love jump scares. I love what I call like junk food horror. And I think these movies are total junk food horror. Mm -hmm. And especially like, just like you said about, um, you know, coming off of really mean spirited stuff. This is the kind of like fun stuff that you like smile and laugh at. Um, so I just like, so I just, yeah, I remember going with, I probably went with my friend Aaron, who I think I've seen all of them with um, and just being like, okay, like I'm all in on this. Um, although I will say this one, I didn't like as much as Insidious. The franchise took until the second installment to like really, mm -hmm. really catch me. Um, but yeah, I love the jump scares. I love the period piece of it all. Like, it's just so much fun. Yeah. Oh, it's the periodness of it is great. Like we were watching this last uh, two nights ago, like my wife and daughter and I, and just like marveling at the fashion in this. And, yeah. you know, my wife was like, I don't have enough. Um, like, I don't have enough shirts where I'm coming out of like a giant frilly lace collar. It's like, well, why I don't mean, you have that? What is stopping you from dressing like you? that? Yeah, like Lorraine Warren's signature collars are so fly, and I love how they just like made them Vera's look. Like mm -hmm. she wears that collar. It's mm -hmm. like she wears oh, it. she does. her superhero <laughs> costume, if you will. Yes, yes. 
she yeah. totally owns this movie. Like she completely com- like, and I'll say this, like I I'm on the record of not being the largest Patrick Wilson fan. And I think that I'm, I'm starting to have to change my tune. Oh my God. Um, so much because like, <laughs> you know, rewatching him in this, I, I definitely don't like his performance in city is still, but he right. more than makes up for it here. Um, there was also an uh, interview this week with both Vera Farmiga and uh, Patrick Wilson in Uproxx. I think journalist Mike Ryan conducted mm-hmm. it. And it was like the most ridiculous thing I've ever read where like at seven points in the interview, like Vera was asking Mike if he believed in spiritual warfare. Um, it was bug nuts. It was like, and I guess like he tried to convey like, look, it doesn't, it's not as crazy as it sounds. It was a really light interview. Uh, and Patrick Wilson just came off as like the chillest dude in the whole world. Like totally like I would totally have a beer with this Oh, He guy. seems so cool. Yeah. Like his wife seems cool too. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my gosh. I forget her name. Dagmara. I forget her last name. Um, who is in, uh, She's in a lot of things, but probably most recently known for Succession. Um, but they both just seem like so cool and fun. And like Patrick Wilson's done so many like little weird bit cameos. Like he's in a weird episode as himself of the other two. He shows up in The Assistant, which his wife is also in, like as himself, the actor, um, like in an elevator. Like he just does so much like cool, weird stuff that I feel like mm-hmm. he has to be so fun. <laughs> Yeah. And I know, like, we talked about this before, like, you don't like him in Insidious, and I'm like, you need to watch Insidious too, and I think it will change your mind. Um, but yeah, I'm refreshed to hear that you yeah. like him in this. So. Well, definitely, I think Insidious is on the dock for 2022. I think we have oh, yeah. to cover that. I think we have to get to that series sooner than later. Um, so, and Vera Farmiga, like, she, you know, I don't think we think of her as a scream queen, but when you think of, like, she's the mom and orphan, She's done so much horror, yeah. Or yeah. American Horror Story, like one of the seasons, I believe. Am I wrong about that? Or no, her sister Tasia yeah. Farmiga. Okay. Most of but the seasons. She was, but she was Norma Bates in Bates yes, Motel. Yes, in Bates Motel, and she like knocks that out of like every. Oh, I haven't so finished good. that series, but like she completely like owns that series. Like every single moment she's on screen, she owns the the screen. Like. So she's become like this modern horror kind of legend. Like I think the kind of like woman who like 20 or 30 years from now is going to have like another peak resurgence like Jamie Lee Curtis had. Like we're going to look back as fondly in her as we do like a, a Jamie Lee Curtis, because I think she's also like that caliber of performer where yeah, she's, she's so not, great. Yeah, yeah. So to get, and, you know, and Ron Livingston, who to me will always be the dude from Office Space. That's um, like who he is. That's um, who he is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which is so funny. Like, I mean, obviously he's done so many other things, but I think what's like before you even go, like just speaking of how good those two are, um, they steal the show so much that you don't even notice uh, Ron Livingston and Lily. Um, Lily Taylor. Yeah. They're like titans and they're kind of like background compared to yeah. these two i think i mean i i, I love lily taylor's performance in this um mm-hmm. i i very much love her and she's a actress as you know popped around the horror genre quite a bit as well mm-hmm. um but like for for me it's ron livingston like he he could not be in this movie and i would not notice 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think Lily Taylor does do a lot of heavy lifting, especially in the second act, you know, when she's yeah. covered in makeup and, you know, giving, giving us everything there too. Um, but Ron Livingston definitely just like kind of slumps into the background. Yeah, he's just he, like a guy. He has one job in this movie. And as a confused dad myself, <laughs> um, I, I can say I absolutely love that Ron Livingston's whole role is to show up as the dad and just be like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, like, I can't tell you how many times I've come down with my wife and daughter are just like almost burning the kitchen down. And I'm like, they smoke alarms going off. The pets are going crazy. And I'm like, all right, time to put on the dad pants and be like, what's going on right now? You know, just like dad was just totally confused and in, out in way over my head. Just like Ron Livingston is here is like Roger Perron. Like he just shows up and the house is in chaos and he's like, what's, what's up? What's no up, idea. Love it. So true. Love it. I just love that that's really the only role for this dude is to be confused dad. Yeah, he, he has the eyebrows he... for it. For mm-hmm. he, has the, he has the eyebrows for a real concerned look. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's yeah. given us. You know, it'd be like, you've missed the exorcism. I wouldn't say that I've missed the exorcism. Like, I just want him to. <laughs> I fucking um, love office space so much. I love that I wasn't the one who brought up eyebrows this episode. Oh, good point. Like, good point. This is the eyebrow cast now. Um, oh, and... eyebrows are my shit. I love eyebrows. What? <laughs> I mean, I pay attention, and especially obviously the past year, you know, people covered in masks, but like eyebrows have always been like telltale signs of things. I brought it up in an episode I just record on my podcast. Like eyebrows, they're they're a, a, a character trait. I'm Come gonna on. step back for a minute and let you two. <laughs> Do you realize that I hijack every episode of everything that I'm on to talk about eyebrows and I like can't help myself? I had I did a uh, coming soon a Star Trek podcast last week and we were talking about Spock and I was like, Lindsay, you can do this. You can survive <laughs> without not talking about eyebrows. But of course, like 20 minutes of the hour is me talking about eyebrows. Um, this is I'm elated. I can't wait. And I can't wait for us to do an eyebrow spin-off special. I love that you watch like 30 hours of that show to prepare for it. You're like, I'm watching every episode of the season, all hour long episodes, only to spend like a third of it talking about eyebrows. I was born ready. And yet I spent 30 hours trying to prepare. Um, yeah, it's a great episode. I'll make sure to post it when it's live. Eyebrow cast coming I would say the eyebrow game in this, like it's very like, Bert from the Muppets, like those thick, mm. thick, um, concerned eyebrows, like a worry. I would call that the worry wart look. Like he the looks look, yeah. very much like cut from the clots of the Muppets. Yeah. A, a, and a consistently furrowed brow, like mm-hmm. in every sense. Yeah. An, an expression I can identify with. And I think it's like combined with this like very 70s haircut. That is just like oh, yeah. it's a whole like it's a whole bridge of his nose up look like mm-hmm. that's all we're getting. from ron livingston love it (laughs) but it's a great cast i mean it's a tremendously well cast movie you get four excellent performers and performances from them overall and you get a movie that this movie launches a the first maybe superhero duo with um patrick and vera playing real life demonologist and medium and 
You cannot see my skeptical face because we're not recording the video right now, <laughs> but true demonologist and true medium, um, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who it's going to be very interesting talking about this couple as we talk about um, these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you um, have here, like Lorraine was pretty heavily involved in kind of like shaping this movie, wasn't she, Lindsay? She was. So she was consulted by the writers all the way through. Um, there are a few notes of like when it was changing that they actually consulted Lorraine. Um, and she actually was, she was on set. Um, and Vera actually spent a lot of time with her. Vera, we're on a first name basis. Um, actually <laughs> spent a lot of time with her because she wanted to like learn her gestures and how she spoke and just like really wanted to become her. Um, which I think is like, really interesting um and i'll just say interesting um and so did the Peron family like they also visited the set um i don't know how much like uh input they had on what was written or anything like that but they also came to the set of the film and it's um pretty interesting that they like came and were a big part of it the yeah enfield family pretty wild yep it um, is and you know in this movie like i know these are all based on true uh, based on true accounts um and you can like kind of take that with what you will but i think in this one it it doesn't get you know it's obviously not a one-to-one account of what goes on but it feels like the the warrens were a lot more involved in this case than they were um a couple of the in the following movies like their connection becomes like specious at best basically yeah and like yeah, kind of, you know, what they actually got from the Perones and the Warrens. I think it, as much as they consulted on the film, it really sounds like it was much more like gestures and small things like that, because the real story, um, like even admitted by them, was like completely different. Uh, yeah. The Perones actually mm-hmm. asked the Warrens to leave. Um, and they're like, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of skepticism about like what really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly the climax of the movie is the thing that everyone pretty much agrees was not what happened. And to me, I'm kind of like, yeah, it's a horror movie. They needed a final act and the final act couldn't be. And you couldn't help. And they went home. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do you yeah. think it's like do you think it's like our nomenclature though or just uh like the way that we treat you know the phrase based on a true story because it's like when you think of it it's like when you're saying based it's like obviously that means it's like not the story itself but it also doesn't like indicate like a percentage or anything it's not like they can say this is 50% based on a true story or anything like that yeah. you know so yeah. it's like people are just so instinctual to see that and then they're like, oh, so this at what I'm seeing, this is the story. This is what happened. It's like, no, it's based, you know? And yeah. You know, I, 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 I try to look at this version of Ed and Lorraine as just like their own thing. I'm um, like, these are uh, completely fictional people and in the way that they do it. And then it's like, oh, yeah, there were these other people that happen to have the same name. But like the movie version, you know, I, I feel like are very distinct. I agree. I look at them as a total work of fiction. Um, They're the fictional Warrens and they're the real Warrens and they are not the same people and they didn't have the same experiences and they didn't do the same things. It's actually interesting. I'm thinking about a lot. I think about the whole inspired by true events thing a lot and what that actually means. It actually really started to mess with me when the first season of Fargo came out um, because they always say that it's inspired by true events, but like none of it is at all. It was just like something they put in the opening credits 
And I started to think like, what does it mean to actually use that phrase? Um, you know, same with like a movie like The Fourth Kind, where they kept being like, this is the real stuff beside the fake stuff. And you're like, well, what does that phrase really mean? And what is the threshold to be able to use that? Yeah. Um, and then I know like the newest, The Conjuring movie that just came out, everyone's kind of like, oh, the real Warrens, the real Warrens and what really happened. I'm kind of like, you know, we've got an entire Amityville franchise based on a Warren case file. We have about 200 horror movies based on Ed Gein. Um, so I'm like, I like I see when people are like, uh, this isn't cool. I kind of see the point, but I'm very much like this is a work of horror fiction, just like every haunting movie ever, every exorcism movie that's ever existed that's been like based on this tape, every Ed Gein based slasher movie. I'm kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess these ones maybe dance with a little more real because they're naming the characters, but I don't know. That's my I, take. I, so I have, I have a, maybe it's a legal question. Sure. Is there like a criteria for something to be where you can like no longer use like based on a true story. Mm. Like, is so, that something where is there, does it have to meet like a minimal level of like a minimum threshold in order? Or they can just slap it on. <laughs> so that's a good question. And I actually, the reason why I was saying like, I actually thought about it with the Fargo thing and had these like dreams of writing a piece about it, but I was like a very baby writer and like did a bunch of research and prepped it and then never followed through. Um, so I don't have like, I, it doesn't sound like there's, any legal requirement at all like I don't think there's any basis in what it means because like I said Fargo just uses it because it's like a cool bit but like it's it's not at all based on anything in reality um and then again you know things like Texas Chainsaw always say they're based on a, tra a true story um but I mean are they like it's the same story as 50 other slashers that are completely different yeah. um so I think it's a pretty loose term. I don't think there's any actual uh, legal threshold when you're allowed to use it. I think the difference is when you're using someone's likeness, mm -hmm. um, when you're using someone's files and stories and names that you're vulnerable to people saying you're, you know, you're slandering me or using my likeness without permission. Um, you know, you're telling a story and you're saying it's true, but it's not true. Um, I think that's when you can get into trouble like civilly. Like for instance, if these movies made, um, you know, if this was a fiction about people named the Warrens, that said it was inspired by a true story that made them look like horrible a-holes. Um, yeah. The Warrens could probably have some grounds to be like, you can't say that this is a real story and then say all these awful things about us. Mm -hmm. I think that's really often why they try to get the real subjects involved in the production of the film. And I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but I would guess that's a big part of why they like invite people to set and let them contribute mm -hmm. is to be like, you're all good with this, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I so I think it's much more that. And I kind of like the way I kind of like think of the difference between the two is like based on like true story or true events is like, yeah, like when they're kind of using the like likeliness and names and like, you know, more spe like specific instances. And that's like inspired by true events. I mean, you can literally put that about anything because yeah. that usually yeah. is like means it's like an amalgamation of like stories that they're like right. centered around like something like uh, Megan is missing that kind of came up recently in conversation people discovered this movie who hadn't heard of it and then they're like wait this was based on a true story and it was actually based on like three different like stories that were happening in like right. a similar fashion but still nothing specific right. right i wonder how it comes into play this is going to sound silly but another thing that i thought of while i was like trying to figure it out is um the oscar threshold for adapted screenplay versus original screenplay <laughs> 
Because would this be adapted? Because it's like adapted from an original case file, or is this an original screenplay? My guess is that it's adapted. I think um, it's original because it's not huh. based on like a novelization. Like you're using basically case notes, which you're just doing like your research. Like right. if, it would, wouldn't be much different where you know if you know like say Jaws is a bad example because that's adapted from a novel. Um, right. But if you were doing like a, a movie on like the history of NASA, you would be using like the, the reports from the time, the case files, like the scientific journals, like that would be um, all like research material. And I think that's what the, because the Warrens like weren't, their case files like weren't put out as like works of fiction, like the Amityville horror, like it's considered a novel. Um, it's actually not marketed as like based on a true story, even mm -hmm. though, um, the writer Jay Anson like recorded, he didn't actually interview the Lutz family, but he got like 45 hours of pre-recorded interviews with the family that he then like punched up and adapted and came out, you know, with like a horror novel, like much like what Stephen King would right. do, but right. it was marketed as true events, even though it's a fictional novel. Huh? Hmm. Yeah, I guess I I never knew if like if you're adapting a quote true story if that counts as an ad an adapted uh, mm -hmm. screenplay or not. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. Um, huh. I you know because like to your point, Devon, like in this one where based on versus um, inspired by, like they are using the likeness like likenesses of the persons involved. Like they're using all of their rear names. They're using the locales that it took place in. So it is to me, like, it's a little, like I, I thought about this a lot, like what, um, if I have an issue with the film, it's that everything is taken. Uh, all of the paranormal is taken completely on face value. Like there's never even a iota of skepticism that something else might be going on here, that mm. it is just done completely like this is what and i think when you're using the likeness and you're saying like this is taken from their case files like there's a little bit of disingenuousness disingenuousness that goes on there but at the same time like it you know i think the uh exorcism of emily rose did this mm -hmm. very well where it kind of shifts between a courtroom procedural that looks at like scientific fact versus is there a paranormal explanation for this? Um, the curse of Deborah Logan, the last exorcism. Those are two others that look at like, could it be natural? Could it be uh, supernatural where this is pure supernatural and where it's based on real people that were actually involved in shaping it. It makes for like a different argument at that point. Yeah, like I see, I I totally see your point. I, I love the exorcism, of the, the exorcism of Emily Rose because I think it does a really cool job of comparing those two things. I think ultimately it pushes you to believing that it was the devil and a demon, mm -hmm. um, you know, take from that what you will. Um, but yeah, I, I do like see that point. I think that it's like, to me, it's not, how do I word this? I would say to me, it's like a, um, an interesting contextual analysis that, you know, the whole like criticize some of your favorite media that's like 
valid criticism, but it's not something that takes me out of like loving the movies and what they do and what they did. I agree. Um, yeah. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? That totally makes sense. I can buy that. I, I totally yeah. agree. When it comes to this, like we had mentioned like a couple times we dropped, like, you know, Roger Perrin eventually asked the Warrens like, to leave like um he was like i'm really concerned about my wife's mental health and what you're suggesting is not healthy for her and he wasn't angry about it it wasn't like an angry thing he didn't go on to accuse them of being frauds or charlatans he was just like this is not working for our family and the family actually stayed there like another nine years afterwards and they eventually sold sold the house um they said that it just stopped yeah. yeah. Well, they said they were like, oh, eventually the hauntings just stopped. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> they became family. They became friends. No. They're like, we're cool. We're good. So one of the things, like reading about the case a little bit, like they talk about um, Beth Sheba, and it's suggested in the movie, like she killed her baby and then hung herself from like that gorgeous tree. Well, like the real Beth Sheba, like there were child deaths, like she, you know, like a lot of persons during that time period like the infant mortality rate was pretty high so she did have children that died um but like what lorraine warren was suggesting was like oh um she died by stabbing the baby with a knitting needle and you're having this thing where you're experiencing these sharp pains or it looks like a needle has stabbed you at that point so she was suggesting a lot of things that someone in carolyn's mental state would be maybe highly suggestive to Mm -hmm. and that was one of the issues um one of the prevailing theories is like roger perrin he was a truck driver so he was out on the road for long stretches of time um and it was just like the wife and the five daughters and you know the five girls missed their dad um and they wanted him back so there's this idea that perhaps the young ladies suggested what was going on um as a way to kind of create mischief and get like his dad would come back home to take care of the girls and like take care of mom at that point so that's one of the ideas of like why the parent like girls of the family were so adamant that there was like a haunting there i think what's also interesting like an extension of this point um and how the movies address it um, obviously they don't spend time addressing mental illness or mental health at all. I don't think in any of the movies, unless I missed it. Yeah, they don't. Um, but what I think is interesting is that the Warrens are always shown as being skeptics. Um, they're always shown being like, no, this is probably not a haunting. Like most people like, and I'm talking about, you know, these fictional Warrens, mm-hmm. um, they're always shown coming in and being like, no, we don't think this is a haunting. Um, you know, people always think that, but there's usually an explanation, Um, And then it turns out that there was a haunting. So in this one, they show up and they like find the sources of the sounds and they leave happily. Um, And it happens, I think, in all of in the entire universe. I think it happens in all Mm -hmm. of them um, or the ones that they're in. They always come and they're like, oh, there's a perfectly rational explanation for this. And they leave. I think it's like a really interesting way of like addressing that they're not these people that in the movie version of them, they're not um, investigators that immediately jump to that conclusion they always are like, well, yeah. And I think from what I've read about them in real life, like they were very much like one of their critics said they have not walked into a single house that they didn't believe was haunted. Like 
You, I mean, like you could well, get. I mean, I, the, I'm saying sounds right. I don't know. Yeah, if that's true. <laughs> that was just like that was like one of the criticisms of like every house they went into was like immediately haunted by demons, like everything, um, right. and that was like, come on! Like at a certain point, it's like, nope. Um, I would say like one of the. Oh, sorry, Devon, jump in, my man. Oh, I was just gonna say, and it's like, and is that where it comes in? You know, the the idea of like you know making the warrens like more um likable you know in terms of like you know if they're not the ones jumping to the conclusions instantly and then it's like in the second one they even bring in you know the idea of like you know um accusing one of the kids of you know being the one behind it but then Mm -hmm. you know i guess where um that's where you take the liberties and you know the you know where the real life and the story of the movie you know begin to diverge and you you know you kind of have to make those decisions of like okay like which is gonna make more sense you know going forward for the narrative i guess yeah without a doubt like this is a version this is a fictional version of a lovely couple yes um and i'm not saying that i don't know the real morons i don't know a ton about them i have no idea whether or not they were lovely um but this is a fictional lovely couple who comes in to help people with their demons one of the best horror couples one of my favorite horror couples maybe one of the best couples in cinema if i'm being honest um their relationship we should all be so lucky um in my humble opinion it's (laughs) it is a lovely portrayal of like a happy married couple and a happy family like there's and that's you know to your point devon going way back to what you were saying before about how when you went to go see this movie it wasn't like a torturous experience. Like it wasn't over the top. It wasn't like people getting ripped to shreds. Like there is like a pleasant charm and warmth to the conjuring films um, without skimping out on the horror. Like, you know, like they are, they're rated R movies, not because of over the top violence, but just because like, Hey, these movies are pretty scary. Um, But at the same time, like there's this pervasive sense of like kindness and warmth that, emanates from them that i wish more movies kind of did this thing for sure and i think that's why we come back for more conjuring movies um and even in the most recent annabelle spinoff we get some war in time mm-hmm. and it's because they're the characters that hold us through like in a lot of ways how like um uh i guess how we talked about like Jigsaw, or even like a character like, uh, um, sorry, going back to Evil Dead and talking about a character like Ash. Ash isn't the slasher villain. He's the protagonist that kind of carries us through the series, which is so different from like Mm -hmm. the slasher that carries us through the series. I feel Mm -hmm. like this is really similar in that way in that it's not just like a haunting. This is the... This is the perspective of the Warrens and them as the family. Like when they leave the Perrones alone, we are seeing the Warren story. We're not seeing a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really cool because, again, you're spending a lot of time with them. You're learning about them. They're not these like wacky paranormal investigators, even in Insidious, where we do spend more time um, with the paranormal investigators who ultimately end up taking the reins of the franchise. Um, you know, we're not, it's not the wacky woman in the poltergeist. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's a completely different spin. It's not the poltergeist. It's not poltergeist. It's not the exorcist. This is the story of the investigators and like their lives and who they are and how they try to help people. Yeah. And, and, and not even just in like the characters either, like from like, 
you know, a narrative structure, you know, setting itself apart from like those other franchises. It's like, you know, one, one critique that I do have is like, nobody ever dies in any of these movies like ever, but at the same time, that's where it kind of like speaks to, you know, that comfort, you know, that you have of watching this kind of horror where it's like, yeah, you're still getting the scary stuff, but like, um, I feel like it kind of drew a lot of people in more because it was like this, like, you know, it's, it's comforting knowing that, you know, these movies are about, you know, like good triumphing over evil. There is this like triumphant tone to like, you know, these movies, especially the climaxes and how big they are. And it's like, again, joking about Ed and Lorraine being portrayed like superheroes, but at the same time, that's like exactly what it feels like. No. Yeah. It, you spoke of the um, last movie in the Annabelle series, like Annabelle Comes Home. That might be my favorite of the series. Oh. That one is just like so much fun. I mean, it's like a just pure haunted house thrill ride yes. um, with kids in peril throughout the whole thing. And yes. it's an absolute blast to watch. But let's talk a little bit about Annabelle, not the movies, but Annabelle the doll. Oh, my BFF Annabelle. Mm-hmm. Um, that. I love Annabelle the doll. <laughs> Can you imagine like, and I know it's much different from the raggedy Ann doll that the real Annabelle doll mm. is, but what kind of like fucked up godparent or like aunt gives a kid that doll? It is it's... like, here you go. <laughs> well, like no one. Go her, play. Her whole bit changes. I actually spent a lot of time trying to figure out like exactly who came up with it because James Wan um, came up with Jigsaw, or sorry, with Billy the Puppet and the puppet from Dead Silence. Um, we know that Darren Lynn Bowsman came up with, uh, oh gosh, I forget the name, but the pig puppet in um, in Spiral, which is named, doesn't matter. Um, and so I like really was like, okay, like whose brainchild was this? Like it's Wan, he makes, you know, he calls himself Creepy Puppet. He's created these creepy puppets for almost all of his movies. This movie opens with Annabelle who has nothing to do with the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, I couldn't find like a definitive, like this is who designed her and how she came to be well, and, as much as I wanted to. And I guess it, like apparently it's like the, you know, the, the doll from the case files that's like based off of was just like a raggedy Ann doll. Like wasn't mm-hmm. yeah. just like, you know, obscurely just like terrifying doll. Um, but I mean, I'm a, I'm an Annabelle fan. Um, I like the look. I like the design. I like the way that Annabelle has been used throughout the franchise, except in this movie, because like, I don't know the, Every time I rewatch it, it just feels so like disjointed. This opening, like I like a good cold open, but I don't mm-hmm. know. Like, I feel like they could have introduced Annabelle in a different way. Like they still could have did like the stuff that they did in this movie, like Annabelle kind of terrorizing the daughter while they're gone. They didn't really so, need this like opening stuff, in my opinion. So I love the cold open because, well, for a couple, the main reason is it feels very much like when James Wan did Saw. Like he's on the record, like he and Lay went all on the record are saying like they did that movie because they had didn't have a lot of money. They wanted to make a, a thriller and that was going to be their calling card. They had no idea like this series was going to take off like it did. Um, I remember like seeing them speak at a Fangoria convention and they're like, you know, we're producing Saw 2, but we had nothing to do with it. Like when they came to us and said, what do you want to do next? Like we had no ideas. And I'm like, who's ever going to like give these guys money ever again to do anything? What a couple of buffoons, which shows <laughs> why I'm a complete idiot. 
Um, No, you write about film. You do not produce it. Exactly. I (laughs) am the anti Bob Shea. Um, (laughs) So here, like you can, you know, right away, like James Wan is thinking, I've got a franchise in my hand. Like I've got spinoffs in my hands because like, so uh, everything with Annabelle in this movie is done with the idea of like, we're going to have eventually, we're going to be able to spin this off into its own thing here. And I love, I think what the cold open does too, is it sets up the tone of the movie right away. Like it's going to let you know, like it's going to be scary, but it's not going to be anything you can't handle. Like the scares are very simple. Like a red crayon rolling into the room is probably the scariest thing that happens in the whole cold open yet as silly as that sound it's so effective and it gets the kind of the hairs on the back of your arm to stand up a little bit and it sets the tone for and just that 70s yellow font um you're like i'm in like i know the kind of ride i'm going for at this point i and, and yeah. it like you know sets the tone for like ed and lorraine as well it's like you know they're mm-hmm. kind of like they're opening superhero action piece you know like bam this is how they do it they come into the house and they ask the questions they detain the room they do the things no. you know so it's like you know it is kind of like that but um just in like rewatching this it's like you know him uh, like james wan obviously knowing that this is going to be like a franchise type deal this first half of the movie like it it has a lot going on and it like kind of comes off a little slow because it's like trying to do Annabelle stuff. It's trying to do Ed and Lorraine stuff. And it's also setting the family up and it's like, you know, cause they're also planting all these seeds for later. So it's like, that's why I like the conjuring two more. Cause it's a little more streamlined. Mm-hmm. Just like kind of hop in and it's like very more focused on the singular story. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I just wish that I, there was a way to work Annabelle mm-hmm. in a different way in this opening for me. I, I sorry, go ahead. No, you you first. Um, I do ultimately like yeah, I I do like uh, the Conjuring two better, but I think for different reasons. But I do agree. I think what I really like about this open, I don't know. I don't have any insight into whether or not they were told to set this up as a franchise uh, thing. I mean, I guess by focusing on the Warrens, it kind of seems possible and what they were doing with insidious it's possible that that was what was on their minds with it i have to assume that a huge part of it was that the doll in the case was probably the most well-known uh, artifact that the warrens have um and they probably were like well we don't want to make an annabelle movie now but let's try to get this in there because it's such a cool thing like they really do or did have a raggedy Ann doll behind a piece of glass that says positively do not open which is just like Mm-hmm. bone chilling and so cool and I love I think the movie was just like we want to set that up um, I think it was like in a lot of ways setting up the Warrens for two huge reasons one it was setting up their artifact room um, which uh, we'll chat about but it also sets up that the Warrens come in and give you information that tells you that you're wrong and it's scarier than you thought and so they're not just coming in um, you know you're not saying I think I might be haunted and they're coming in and they're like yeah you are they're coming in and they're like, actually, you're wrong. Um, and I'm going to help. I believe you. Um, but it's good that you called me because I'm the expert. And what's really happening is different. And from an audience perspective, what's really happening is way worse. And I think that whole bit with Annabelle and her lore changes a lot throughout uh, the rest of the franchise. Um, but in this version, you know, they've got this Annabelle doll. These women died. And the women in the house are like, oh, yeah, we just told her. We invited her to 
you know, go into the doll. And now I think she's being a little bit, um, you know, it's a little bit problematic. And the Warrens real are like, oh, no. About that too. Real what? Casual. Sorry? Yeah. I said, real yeah, they're like, yeah. we just let her in. She asked and we said, no, we yeah. let her in. We just like let her in, the, which is bizarre that they were like, we thought it would be fun to let her into this terrifying doll. Listen, interesting choice. But then the Warrens go, oh yeah, no, that's not what happened. Uh, spirits cannot possess items, um, which is a very cool way to tell us something that the Warrens know that audience members don't and that they're experts. And it's like, actually what's really happening is a demon is tricking you by moving the doll around. And I was like, oh my God, that is so scary. Like to me, that is such a good cold open because it like, I learned so much about what they know and what their expertise is. And the idea that like a demon was tricking them into thinking that it was a friendly inside the doll, but really it was just messing with them by moving the doll around. Terrifying. Yeah. In my opinion. I love and that. This is another movie too, when it comes to setting up like the demonology and the lore, it's the third movie I can think of like, paranormal activity insidious and now this where they're like if you leave it will follow you like it it you know it and there's two like i think what this movie does well like there's two very good reasons for the parents not to leave like number one they're told and with a great line he's like well sometimes like when you know a demon finds you it's like when you step in gum like you just can't get rich is like the delivery on that line is pretty fantastic as well but the other reason is like like Roger says, like all of our money is like sunk into this house. Mm-hmm. Like we can't just sell it. Like we have done a lot of repairs. Like there's no way we can afford to sell it. But the other thing too, he's like, there are seven of us. Like we are a very Catholic household. We have procreated like you wouldn't believe. And who is going to take in seven people? Right. Just kind of put them up mm-hmm. and let them couch surf. Like, so there's reasons why they're not allowed to kind of leave. And, but it is a third movie where it's like demons will attach themselves to you and they will follow you around like a bad penny. Yeah. Like we saw, we've seen that messed with before. I think that's another thing that the reason why I call these movies junk food is like we saw it with, um, my goodness, we covered it with Ethan Hawke. Uh, and come on. Hmm? Sinister. Um, How the lore was like, if you leave, that's when it's going to kill you. And like that messed with it. Um, You know, we've watched American Horror Story and it's always like our money's tied up in this house and we can't leave. Um, And, you know, we get that here. So it's very the same old, our money's tied up and we can't leave. But it's just kind of like, especially now, you know, we're in what, like the second or third economic crisis of our lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, yeah, I can't leave. I'm stuck. I'm stuck here. Like, yeah. So um, it's very believable. And for so much of my life, I was like, oh, my God, just get out of the house. And now, you know, (laughs) I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it. They can't go anywhere. Right. It's a hard (laughs) thing to do. So, you know, and it's kind of like we're going to for listeners, like we're going to do like a bonus episode just on the Warrens uh, later on the summer. So we'll talk about some of their cases and some of the skepticism around them. Like we thought it might be a fun little bonus to maybe do something like that. So look for that later this summer as we'll talk more about like the real life Warrens versus like what we see here in, in the movie. But we'll talk about um, things like the Amityville horror, like which is the opposite where you have a couple that like know that a murder has taken place in a home and the idea like the, maybe the Genesis is planted. Like we could move into this house 
say that it's haunted and that's why the murders took place. And then we can like profit for the rest of our lives off that story, which is what they did, which is what the Lutzes did with the, the Amityville case. So we'll talk more about stuff like that. I don't ever see us covering the Amityville horror franchise because there's like 20 of them. I can tell you Um, right now it's never going to happen. Yeah. Like and maybe we'll talk about it at some point. <laughs> maybe we'll do like a bonus, like original versus the remake. You know, Ryan I mean, potentially Ryan yeah. Adams at, or I'm sorry, Ryan Adams. Ryan, um, why can't I think of his name? Reynolds. Ryan, thank Ryan, you, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds Adams versus mm-hmm. Margot Kidder's side boob. Pretty much, like, <laughs> what is? I Let's, like won't give more info, but the movie that like messed me up the most in my life is in that franchise, and I refuse to really? watch it again. Which yeah, one? Like, what, I, which part? Oh my god! I can't. You're what? I just need to. I Let's don't traumatize know. you. <laughs> I'm What's like this? I'm like nervous just saying it, which mm-hmm. I know probably sounds wild, but you know I was very young, and it was just like I should not have watched it. I was at like a kid's birthday party. Stephanie, your mom should have never done that to what us. Kind she of birthday? My ear. What? kind of all right kids we're gather like around we're doing the amityville horror for you we watched and i don't birthday. even know if it's scary and i will never find out because i'm not re-watching it so like maybe someone's gonna be like are you out of your mind that mm-hmm. movie's a cartoon um the 1992 it's about time was like oh my most, god that is i can't so funny it traumatized me in a way mm-hmm. that i can't even for years every time i was at a sleepover party it was like a countdown of like am i gonna call my parents because i'm scared of 1992 and it scared me so much. And I will say, like, you spent the whole year of 1992 in fear. I in love pure it. Pure fear. Pure fear. And oh my gosh, I'm like literally a little shivery just telling you about it. And one thing that scares me the most to this day in horror movies, which is why I also really want to rewatch Oculus, but I don't think I can stomach it. Um, one thing that scares me the most is the idea of thinking that you're able to get help and it's really close, but it's kind of a trick. Mm hmm. And in that movie, there's the bit where I think it's a woman. I honestly don't remember. I was like six, five or six, I think. <laughs> I was very young. Maybe not that young, but I was pretty young. And um, the woman's like banging outside to, to the cops mm-hmm. being like, "What? like, help me. And the cops are peeking inside through the window and they don't see her and they don't see anything. Um, and there's a couple similar scares in Oculus, a couple similar ones in the vigil. And I, it's just the thing that scares me the most. And that just Excellent. like absolutely messed me up. It's like the ending of Saw 2. Oh, my God. It's kind of like that. Um, I think you need to talk to our friends, Terry and Mary Beth from Scarred for Life. Because then I would have to rewatch it and I'm not going Uh, to do it. What would be the what would be the Patreon level like? What would be like for a thousand dollars? You will rewatch this movie on. <laughs> You're buying me a Discord. car. You're buying me this a movie. car. Um, no, I want a car. Pay back um, the student loans, and you yeah. can. Um, the the <laughs> Amityville Horror novel. I finished reading it the last day of fifth grade, and I was an altar boy at the time, like super religious household. I woke up the next morning, first day of summer vacation covered in chicken pox oh but it was, my god but it was like it was dark out and i couldn't see myself and i thought that like god had punished me for reading this like sacrilegious book oh, and that saying? like i was getting turned into a demon like and it fucked me up like reading that book that would make a great short film oh Honestly. man <laughs> 
Someone oh write that. So that's your that's I'm your spooked. idea right there. I've been like spooked for a few days now. Um, I had a very spooky night. I have a very spooky few nights in a row, and this is just not helping. <laughs> it's not. Is your, is your parents' house haunted? Uh, like maybe I think it's it's like a little spooky. <laughs> Some spooky things have happened. I'm a little freaked out, and then I watched The Conjuring Three last night, uh, and it was very spooky. And um, <laughs> so Go take some pictures. Oh your my flash God. out and go no stop i'm like i'm so spooked recently <laughs> and uh just like a fun little like peek into my light my night last night so i haven't like seen a movie with friends obviously in like 15 16 months and uh my friend and i oh gosh what day is it well don't tell anyone my friend and i were like we're gonna watch the conjuring three together and so my uh the place here um i can open up all the sliding doors so it's like only like two and a half walls you know mm-hmm so like, we're going to open up all the sliding doors. We're going to pull the TV as close to the windows you know, as we can. We're going to wear masks. We're going to sit. We measure 10 feet apart, and we're going to watch this movie. Um, so we watched it, like, really loudly, and um, it was dark. It's, like, nighttime, and I have all these sliding doors open, and it's pitch black outside. And so the movie ends, and the score is, like, blaring, and we're pretty freaked out. And my dog spots a squirrel and just shoots outside. Or, sorry, a oh, raccoon. Man. And just shoots outside and starts barking. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I run out after him. I can't see anything. And I just, like, know that he's definitely in a melee with an animal. So I'm, like, tackling him, trying to get him inside. <laughs> I carry him inside and I'm like, close the doors, close the doors so I can get him inside. We close the door and there is a humongous bug the size of my hand on the ground. Not that big, but pretty big on the ground. And she's like, there's a bug. And I'm like, it's probably dead, right? She's like, I don't think so. So I'm like tackling my dog while we're like screaming and fighting with the doors. It was complete chaos. Um, And so that did not contribute (laughs) to my incredibly sleep tonight. Oh, man. I'm not laughing at you. It's fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Like my next door neighbor was outside on his patio the entire time and probably <laughs> thinks like, "What is happening?" That like sounds like a like scene of like a Sam Raimi movie. Yeah. Like a note that I have about this film too. Like this film has like some like Sam Raimi esque sequences, but that's like what all that sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> it was chaos let's talk about let's that. talk about those sequences let's I stop traumatizing we've spent the past 10 minutes traumatizing <laughs> Just messing with me. i'm Lindsay. sweating i'm so. sweating <laughs> man i'm so. taking one headphone out just in case yes. i'm sweating okay let's talk about evil dead scenes because yes i think i agree and i really want to hear what you have to say yeah, there's there's just like a, a few different ones like in it's like it feels like sam raimi-esque but then also like um, you know the the 70s like vibes as well like there's like even just like a simple scene of like when Lily Taylor gets like thrown down the stairs just like the sound cues and the way that it was like shot and just like everything just like kind of felt like that but then like of course we have lots of um, liquids going into in and out of people's mouths in this film which is you know yeah. always makes me feel like Sam Raimi yes there's that even like some of the makeup effects like on beth sheba and on lily taylor when she is possessed like it has an almost like deadite look to it like it has that kind Mm -hmm. of the hair gets teased out a bit more you have like the uh contact lenses in the eye and then the skin has that kind of stretched out almost clawed at look to it that gives it an almost like deadite feel and the like voice change to death too yes 
Um, I was gonna say the voice change. I can't remember exactly what she yells when they're like tackling her into the house. But if you told me it was, I'll swallow your soul. I would believe you. <laughs> um, the other thing I noticed, like watching it, there are there like James Wan moves the camera a lot in this movie, um, mm-hmm. both during the scary bits, but also like there's that scene when the family, when the parents first move into the home. And it follows like through the front door and it follows, I think like the second youngest daughter as she's like carrying like the wind chimes through the house. And it's the way to introduce the whole family and give like just a little bit of flavor for them. But it's like, it's a, it's like a nice, like one shot, one track scene that flows mm-hmm. throughout like the whole bottom, like the whole first story of the house. And there are other times where the camera is like constantly in motion um, and pulling your attention into certain places um as opposed to being this like static uh thing and it's it's great in terms of how like one uses that to kind of like pull your attention in different ways it it puts like emphasis on it like puts emphasis on uh the architecture as well like i really like it Mm -hmm. in um you know horror films that are you know sent set in you know uh mainly one location and i like the like intro scenes where it's like you can get the layout so that way you know you're you can follow you know the action like what's going on especially with like scenes here when it's like people are falling down like three stories but then it's like oh yeah this house has you know two stories and they established it was a secret door in the wardrobe and it's like you know they do uh, all that kind of stuff but like i i like that it also just like kind of shows how sprawling this location is too yeah. yeah, they do a good job. I think they actually, so the exterior shots were a real house, but all the interior shots were on a set. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like they did a really cool job of giving you the layout of the land and where everything's going to be and where you're going to land if you fall. Yep. So let's move into specifically the scares of the movie um, as we wind down here, because there are a lot of bit great scary bits. I have a couple written down a specific thing that Juan does, but what did you find? Like what jumps out at you in a jump scare heavy movie? Um, And this, I think movie makes a great case where how jump scares can be done really well and be a lot of fun. Um, What stands out in terms of the key moments of this film? I mean, it's gotta be hide and go clap. Um, I think that's like the scare. I mean, because I like the ro- the recurring of it, too, because like each time they play, it gets creepier and creepier. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like the first time they play and it's like nothing happens. But, you know, it already kind of sets up the suspense a little bit. And then it's like then the next time they play um, is where, you know, you can kind of start hearing like breathing and um, it kind of ramps up the tension a little bit. And then leading to when it's just um, the mom and the youngest daughter playing. And then that's when we get like, you know, one of like the like really, really good scares where it's like, wow. you know, just so simple of the hands reaching out from the wardrobe and clapping like so good. It's a great scare. It is. It's almost wish it wasn't used like they featured that not even as a trailer, but as an extended scene mm-hmm. from a trailer. I, mm-hmm. I wish they hadn't like spoiled that because it but it, it is like just so well done. Um because it's so simple and what you had gotten like moments before that was like pure chaos with like all the, like the banging through the house and the pictures all coming down and you're waiting for something to like kind of top like the intensity of that. And what you have is this really simple thing. And what I love, like the hands look like they're completely disembodied. Like you don't see anything else 
behind them. And I think that's one of the things that makes that the little thing that puts it over the top. It makes it so disturbing. And it's like all the lighting, like you don't need to see like the wrists that are disembodied. It's mm-hmm. lit in such a way that it is just a pair of floating no. hands. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a good scare. I, oh gosh, I have a few. I think the door slam is the one that scares me the most every time, even though it's like the most cliche scare. It's in all movies like it. It's like it happens in probably the Babadook. It happens in Insidious a million times. It happens in these movies a million times, but it will make me shriek every yeah. time because it's always always uh it always proceeds um or it's always immediately preceded by someone being like i don't see anything mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like you know what's coming where they're like i don't i don't know but in this one they kind of have that moment of like she's right behind you which is yeah. just like oh makes me want to barf and yeah. then it's just like slam um it scares me every time even well, though i know it's coming and I think like the setup for that works so well too, where you have like that kind of off kilter camera motion where you're seeing things like under the bed from the perspective of the girl. Like usually when you see that, you don't see like the upside down point of view, but you get that here. So you're immediately just a little bit disoriented when you come back out of that shot. And then, and Juan does this a couple times in the movie where he holds on the blackness in that space between like the closet and the door where there's just like this black Mm. pitch black area. And it just holds on it for just a few beats too long. Like when you watch a horror movie, you, your body tends to know, like this is when the jump is going to come. It's like counting Mississippi's when you play touch football with your friends, like, you know what the cadence is supposed to be. And I think what this scene does, and then the like stinger that closes out the movie, they hold everything for just that beat where you're a little bit, you know, it's still coming. Like you're not relieved, uh, but you don't know when any longer. And that makes the scene work that much more. Totally. And it's like, I like that he has a couple scenes, you know, and you know, he does them in the other films where, where, you know, the scares are off the backs of like the actors, you know, of just like, letting an actor like you know zone in for this scene i mean you know joey king like really just like locks it in with like the way that she's you know describing and like the way that she's emoting when it's just fixing on that you know black space like you said so it's just like you know all the suspense is literally just built up off this like performance which Mm -hmm. i really like absolutely like the guy knows how to craft a jump scare like he knows exactly what he's doing when it comes to to crafting a jump scare to the point that like even when you see them coming you are going to jump it's not like some others where you're kind of like oh that one didn't hit me as much as i expected it to um and then he messes with scares like as much as there are so many jumps there's also a few that are a little bit slower like i also really like the music box scare um, where Vera is looking in it, uh, Lorraine is looking in, you know, her reflection and the kid tells her what's going to happen and you know, what's going to happen. Um, but then you just see the demon in the reflection and it's yeah. not a jump scare per se. It's not time to music to make you shriek. Um, but it's just enough to make you go like, Oh my God. And I feel like, I mean, my reactions are like, I, I'm always like, Oh, I want to barf. That's just like my fear reaction, I guess. <laughs> I feel like so many times through this movie, I'm like, oh, I'm going to straight up barf. This is like, they just punched me in the gut with this scare. And they're like, all so good. Like from jumps to the more subtle ones. Like they just get me. I don't know. This movie. 
I mean, he knows when to give you the goods too. Like whenever we do get, you know, our first look at, you know, uh, Bathsheba on top of the wardrobe, like, you know, like holds on it for a good minute so you can really take in like how terrifying she is, you know? Yeah. That's my favorite scare in the movie for a couple reasons. That is mine for a couple reasons. Number one, you're so well conditioned to believe that when she opens up the armoire, that's where the terror is going to emerge from. But then it doesn't happen. But then the camera cuts back again to the other girl who's in bed and she's looking not at the armoire, but above it. Right. So you know that the bad mojo is there at that point. Like her, that's where you, you can immediately follow like the, her line of sight. You're like, it's not in there but something is there. And then the camera pans back to the point of her point of view. You're looking at the armoire and then the camera just pans up, just tilts up just a little bit. Um, And you see this thing and it's in a position your body shouldn't naturally be in as well. And that's what also makes it work. It's like you're in this pose that your body wouldn't naturally find comfortable. And -hmm. then it just comes like screeching out. Like it's absolutely and again, it, it it feels very much like a lot of the scares that are Insidious. Insidious feels like running, like making the demo tape for this movie. And I actually prefer the first Insidious a little bit over this movie. I find it just a hair scarier overall. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like this gets things done on a bigger, grander scale, and I can see why it would be so appealing to audiences. Like I love it. Um, and then there's so many good ones like there there there's like one other one that just like kind of stood out to me on this like rewatch that like i don't see like talked about as much but um it's just where like carolyn is like hiding underneath something and then we see the the legs like drop down as if they're hanging you know and then they like stop swinging like to like a standstill and then just slowly rotate around and then like comes at her it's like such a just like I don't know the way that he like makes the body like precisely like float around in certain scenes, like makes it just like, uh, it's, I don't know. Weird. Oh my God. Just terrifying. I also think what's cool about the scares in this movie, um, a criticism you hear of like so many haunted house movies are, you know, it's such a coincidence that the ghost takes a long time to build up to the climax, right? Like the first act, it's always pretty subtle. Second act, they like up the ante. I think what's cool is that in this movie, like the ghost or the demon, um, well, whatever, the, oh God, uh, oh no, someone's going to correct me. Um, the, uh, the scares are pretty consistent all the way through. Obviously there's the big climax, but it's because of the whole stages of possession like it explains mm-hmm. that away um but it also keeps the scares going the whole time i think the only time those stakes are raised is in the hair pull scare which again really reminds me of the one from uh it follows um there's that hair pull which looks really silly and it follows but also totally works um where they're all like oh wait you know i think it stopped and then one of the daughter's hair just shoots up in the air yeah. Um, and the reason why that one uh, feels more scarier is more more scarier feels scarier is because it's way more intimate. It's not like they didn't slam a door, they didn't throw the bed. Um, it's touching you, like it grabbed you by the hair, which is woof, woo. Yeah, and there's something about that flowy type scare where the hair just stands up on its own that like it always gets to me. Um, cause you know, what's going to happen like right after it always gets me. Yeah. I 
actually really love like the last scene, the last stinger of this movie where it goes back to the music box and it starts rotating on its own. Mm. And again, as a fan, I'm conditioned to believe that like something is going to pop into the view of the mirror and then it's going to fade to black. But here it just smash cuts to black before that happens. And it's almost like a jolt before you kind of laugh to yourself and get up. Like I like that it subverts that expectation just a little bit. Totally. So love it. Yeah. Um, Very Christopher Nolan. Um, and kidding. I like that this, uh, this the movie itself, you know, it's like we you know think of it as a haunted house film, obviously, but then it also has, you know, the uh, the possession exorcism angle. And like, that's a subgenre that like, I'm a big fan of. I really like mm-hmm. exorcist exorcism films, whether it goes by the formula or doesn't, you know, so it's like, I like it when we get a classic, you know, someone's possessed and the way that it's filmed in this like basement one. It's just like really fun with like the sheet over its head, but like, like every exorcism movie, I need a levitation scene and like I need a really good one. And this one gives me the goods. Like I love the levitating chair and that going upside down and just like smashing on the roof of the basement. Like I'm a I'm a sucker for a good levitation scene, so it gives me the goods there too. Yeah. And it's a little different in most exorcism scenes because after that, it uses a ton of different spaces. Like it's not confined to one room, like one setting. You Mm -hmm. get like you make really good use of that basement uh, and all the different crawl spaces. And it feels very claustrophobic and a tad bit like, how do you get out of this predicament? So that's one of the things I like. So I have a thing. I'm a tad bit claustrophobic myself. So I definitely have a thing about that. Um, it's you. Yeah. Yeah. So we got a couple comments from our reader. Do we have anything else you want to add before we get to the questions from the, the listeners or? No, I think that's good. How about yeah, you, Devon? You good? Yeah, All right. Let's say I got most everything out. All right. Most everything out. Okay. Well, maybe there'll be an opportunity to add to that then. Um, but if you have something, like now's the time, my man. Oh, no. We can go ahead and hop into okay. questions. I'm sure once right. prompted, I'll have. Okay. So we have just a couple questions from our, our listeners out there um, from on our Facebook page, pod, facebook.com, pod and the pendulum. Uh, our friend Nicole Goebel, she of the Anatomy of a Scream uh, Bodies of Horror podcast. Um, are there similar real life based on real life hauntings or ghost stories that you'd like to see adapted into a film series? Ooh, I mean, probably. Hmm. I don't think I mean- there's been anything done on like the hauntings at the Tower of London. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ooh, I'm trying to think because I feel like so many of the haunting stories that I know of are much more like it's haunted and here's like the, you know, the hauntings, but no like specific backstory. Like I don't know of any like, I don't think I know any that haven't been adapted that are like, this was haunted by this specific spirit and here's the backstory. But I do know Mm -hmm. a lot of hauntings, like haunted places. I mean, I don't know too many like specific like haunting stories or places I'd want. 
but I would like to kind of go back to getting more of um movies based on like um like urban legends like myth type like haunting stuff mm-hmm. like like uh, I know this like one where it's like you you're supposed to like go park your car on these on these train tracks and then turn your car off and then um if you turn your car off and like put it in neutral like you you it'll push your car off the tracks and then if you like go around to like your car you're just, like supposed to be able to see handprints of no. like ghosts that push you off the tracks or something oh like that God. like stuff Don't... like that i would be interested in like more superstition like urban legend films mm-hmm. of, like about hauntings <laughs> so i live in oh, yeah you... go on sorry you first well okay uh um what was I going to say? Yeah. So there's a haunted ballroom uh, in Toronto that actually it's in the Royal York, which if anyone watches um, um, the Handmaid's Tale, uh, which don't, but if you do already, um, <laughs> they go to the Royal York in the most recent or second last oh. episode. Um, that's the hotel that they're at. But anyway, it is like our famous big giant hotel that's at Union Station. And the ballroom has actually been sealed up for years because it's haunted. Um, and they just a few years ago, uh, reopened it for events. And not that I have like, I don't want anything to happen, but I like really would love to see like a scary story about like this ballroom has been sealed up for, you know, 50 years, but then they were like, no, this is dumb. We're wasting so much space. That's awesome. Event space. And then like the first wedding that happens there, like something's spooky. Excellent. I, a haunted ballroom would be a really fun story too. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I just think of that moment of The Shining when everyone turns around. It gets deathly quiet, what? like so good. I live in a, a part of the state called uh, uh, that's part of what they call the Bridgewater Triangle, where there's like this area of towns where there's been a number of like reported like satanic activity, um, ritual murders, Bigfoot sightings. Um, Someone said there's like a pterodactyl somewhere and a number of like different ghostly apparitions. And one of the ghosts, like there's a stretch of road on Route 44 where a red haired ghostly hitchhiker will either appear in the passenger seat of your car. Oh, my God. Or just run alongside your car. And then like you'll hear his voice like laughing at you on your car radio at that point and it's caused a number of accidents and i would love like a ghostly hitchhiker story yeah um, that would be something i would be totally into um all right that was an excellent question love it um from twitter we have at indie emil gbg i'm not sure what that is but the, it's emil johannesson levin one of our followers asked, and I think he, uh, he asked, bah, 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 how and why are James Wan and Leigh Wano so good at creating new horror IPs? I mean, I don't know. They've created three of the three of the greatest horror franchises and three franchise, like in, a, in an era where it doesn't feel like we have the types of franchises that sprung out of the 70s and 80s. Um, we have three consistent franchises that we all got to witness in theaters and yeah. all three of them were started by those two. Yep. I mean, I, I think it's like, because they are both like filmmakers that, you know, that they, they don't like shy away from their influences. 
you know and i think it's like when you embrace the influences then it's like it gives you a little more freedom to you know have these original ideas and kind of play with them but using your inspiration as as tools you know it's like there's so many you know like i said you know raimi homages or you know this is basically a a james wan amityville movie you know it's like there's you know uh easily easy influences amongst both their filmographies but it's like they don't like shy away from those i think a lot of the best filmmakers do that you know like just like not trying to be like oh i'm not trying to do that be like yeah that's what influenced me to do this but this is how i'm using it and and it comes off fresh yeah i think it's in part because they are able to they don't forget that part of what makes horror great horror work is getting great performances yeah out of your actors really great point you give like um lynche an opportunity to play like an all time phenomenal character that you're immediately drawn to. Like she's the modern day, like Zelda Rubenstein from the Poltergeist series, except Mm -hmm. she's like at a higher level of performer and caliber overall. Um, You get Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga at the top of their game, Rose Byrne and insidious. You just get these excellent performances out of everybody. And it, they all they don't ever skimp out on the characters. They never like put the scares at the expense of them. Mm-hmm. So one of my major complaints about horror sometimes is when everything is done just to serve the scare. And that means like writing characters you hate because you can't wait for them get them killed off, and that'll get a cheer from the crowd. The, all of their movies make you want to root for the characters. And part of what scares us is the fact that they're in peril. Yeah, that is a really excellent yeah. point. Um, mm-hmm. And this this last one is just more of a statement from the Chickapedia at the Chickapedia, who uh, joined us for our uh, it reading. Have a great recording. Hopefully, I'll get to check out the house sometime. It's fifteen minutes from my own home. Yeah, she. Nope. She mentioned knowing the Perrin family growing up when we were doing the it reading. So we may, I may have to talk to her at some point and just get her on the record for a few minutes. Um, I don't know. You wouldn't like even drive by the house. You would never. So I actually a hundred percent would, which is I think like my own fault. Um, a quick, very short anecdote is uh, I used to edit um whatever I when I was in school I created the content for a thing and um one of my projects our first issue was always on Halloween so it was like my Halloween issue and what was I going to do and I thought it'd be really fun uh because where our school was um there were a lot of haunted locations including a haunted abandoned hospital and I was like let's ghost hunt there like let's get some like really dank gear and let's just like all go at midnight and just like explore this haunted uh hospital I thought it'd be like really fun and then really hilarious to have these like videos of us obviously losing it and being so terrified. And when we got there, we like did it. We like got everything. We were ready. It was set up. It was good to go. And the second we got to the hospital doors, everyone was like, forget it and bailed. (laughs) And I was the only one that was like grabbing the doors like, no, we are going inside, Um, which was just like not very good instincts on my part. But everyone else was like, no, and I wasn't going to go alone. (laughs) So I don't know. 
I don't know. Oh, you got a bunch of cowards for friends, my friend. They ran. And I was like, what? We've come this far. Like, we're already here. Who bails now? And they were like, no, we've just completely decided no, that it's not going to happen. Um, so I don't know. Like, part of me is like, yes, I like to do ghost tours and haunted walks and stuff in cities, um, including my own. And uh, yeah, I like to think that I would probably want to go, but I wouldn't want to, you know, tempt any demons. I don't want to be like disrespectful. If it was I, an I, Airbnb, I, would you stay there? No. Okay. Mm, <laughs> no, no chance. No, I'm not tempting I, I fate. Wouldn't. <laughs> I, I wouldn't stay the night, but I mean, I'd check it out. Like, I I lived pretty close to um the house where like the original story that uh, the Exorcist is based off of. Oh my like, god! That story happened, so like I knew where that house was. Like one of my siblings was actually born in like the same hospital that she was taken to. Oh my god! Like, yeah. So creepy stuff i'd check it out but like i'm not staying in it yeah i'm not staying over i think i would and like to be <laughs> fair my like quote ghost hunting gag was kind of disrespect like not actually like like potentially disrespecting the ghost i don't want to like mess with anybody i don't need to like disrespect uh-huh. any ghosts or demons um like i'll like come check out the scene but i'm not gonna like make a gag <laughs> okay it. i think i would do it yeah i don't know now i don't know all right. I think you're brave until you're forced to face your own yes. fears. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, listeners, that has been the first in our series on what we've now determined will be eight shows on the Conjuring Verse. Actually, nine because we're going to have that bonus one too, with um, just focusing on Ed and Lorraine Warren. So, fun conversation with you. Uh, Mr. Taylor, can you tell us what's going on? Like, what is the Bloody Blunts podcast? What can listeners who tune in, what will they? What can they expect to hear? Yeah, the uh, Bloody Blunts Cinema Club is um, a podcast. I host it solo, but I have uh, various guests on, and every month we tackle a subgenre. That's what we mainly focus on. So we'll uh, pick movies of a subgenre. We'll usually do a pairing, but sometimes we'll do more than that. Sometimes we uh, deep dive franchises. Um, so depending on when this episode comes out, we'll either be in the final destination movies or we'll be in queer horror movies. Um, so make sure you guys go in and check that out. The, um, pages for that on Twitter and Instagram are at, at bloody blunt CC. And then my personal Twitter and Instagram is at underscore daddy disco. And I do, uh, music things and short films on top of other horror related things. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. It's been a blast having you on and you know, you're welcome back. And now that we've got this new way to record going down, like we can hear one another. It's awesome. Killing it. Love it. Everything's coming up Millhouse. It's great. <laughs> um, Lindsay, what do you have that you're working on right now? Well, friends, I've done a couple pod appearances. Um, I don't know uh, if anyone is precious about them and not releasing them yet as I say those words. Um, but let me just say the one that I can tell you about for sure is with uh, our good friend Rena, who was on our episode about uh, the French on for raw. Mm-hmm. Um, so her podcast horror in session, which she does with a uh, woman named Kyla, they had me on and we chatted about the wolf man and it was a very great conversation. Uh, we also of course veered into some more, saw topics as one does and talked a little bit about 
Joker and the Joker movie and the Suicide Squad movies. We had some fun with that. So that's a really cool episode that y'all should check out. And I got a few more appearances that I will tell you about as they happen. Okay. Um, Keeping them in the bank for now. Okay. Yeah. My review of The Conjuring 3 came out today. So by the time this comes out, you will have had the opportunity to see the movie and be able to uh, also read my review. Um, Yeah. So that I have uh, that begs the question. Mm-hmm. Are we covering these movies in order I, they were released, or are we going to cover them like we'll do the three Conjuring, the three Annabelle, and then the Nun? My instinct is order of release because I okay. think that the way they retcon each other makes more sense that way. That mm-hmm. said, I'm flexible. I'm an order of release gal. I think okay. that the reason why things come out in the order that they do is intentional. Um, like when people are like, oh, a better viewing order, blah, 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 is this. I'm like, no, the reason it's not a prequel, like a first installment and a prequel are very different things. Right. Um, so I'm very much a purist in that way. However, I could be convinced otherwise for the sake of the podcast. Okay. That would mean I think our next movie will be Annabelle. Okay. So that's no problem. That'll be the next thing we do. So. Wait, did Annabelle come out before The Conjuring 2? Yeah, you're right. I think so. Because I think that was 2014 versus 2016. Mm-hmm. Whoa, I would have gotten that wrong. Yeah, you are correct. All right. So all right. Look at that. I'm glad we checked in on that. Yep. <laughs> we correct for the wrong film. Whoops. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never I have not seen the first Annabelle. Like I've seen bits <gasps> and pieces of it. So Ooh, I'm excited for that one. All right. Is there anyone you're not excited for? I've heard like the nun is something to not be super excited for. You know what? For. I'm I'm excited for all of them. I okay. unbashedly love this franchise. Again, like I think that because they're junk food, even the ones that people like less, I still really enjoy because I think they just do what I want um, and I get from them what I want out of them. Um, so yeah, I think I'm pretty excited about all of them. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Um, well, folks, in, uh, do we give our do we give our Twitter handle? Do we do that? Oh, yeah. Follow us um, at Pod and Pendulum um on uh twitter and you can find us obviously if you're listening to us now you know how to do that uh consider subscribing to our patreon because we uh love it appreciate it and love all of your support obviously every listen matters and every patron supporter also really matters we uh do standalone specific episodes for our patron listeners so you get to get a bonus episode every single month that will be a movie outside of what we're already covering but sometimes tangentially related which is really fun we just did our episode on dark man while we were uh, taking on the evil dead so um lots of cool content there as well and then of course we also do our three up three down where we chat about things that we are watching and enjoying. So consider subscribing. Consider subscribing. Um, And folks, you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian, wherever you get your Twitter from, which I guess would be Twitter. Um, (laughs) I've got a couple guest show spots that are already recorded. Like as this has come out, if you head over to kill by kill right now, you'll hear me defending scream three. Uh, I am the lone defender of that movie, and I got a bit snarky <gasps> with you know the criticisms because there are you there are there are criticisms be had, and I, I accept them. But I also like unabashedly love all things uh, all things Scream, um, even Scream Three. So I'm on with um, Gina and Patrick over in Kill by Kill, and that was so much fun to do. And also um, 
I'm not sure. I think it comes out next week. Um, Certified Forgotten with Matt and Matt had me on um, to talk about Sweatshop, a super gory and silly and um, really politically incorrect slasher from 2009 that I love dearly because it is like the first indie horror movie I watched at my first ever horror film festival that like kickstarted my love for indie horror. So it's got a special place in my heart. Um, You can hear me there. You can find me on the psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast with Jen and Lara. So basically like I am all over your ear holes. Like my dulcet tones are just wherever you want to have me at any given moment. So um, but listeners, thanks so much. You know, like Lindsay said, please subscribe to the Patreon. Got some ideas where if more people subscribe, we'll do some tiers and add a few fun, easy things, I think, for people um, to make it worth your while. Um, but if you can't subscribe to the Patreon, or even if you can, one thing you can do that is free, it takes two minutes of your day, and it helps people find us. It helps the algorithm gods steer more listeners towards us. Go to wherever you get your podcast. Typically, it's iTunes or Apple's where uh, this really matters. Take two minutes. Click that button that says five stars. Leave us a quick review about what you like about the show and submit that review. It will, as people know, like the podcasting thing, every celebrity is now like, I can do a podcast. It's so easy and I'll make a ton of dough and have a marketing team behind me. And we are the little engine that can. Um, and anything you can do to steer more people towards us is a huge help. So if you can do that, we'd greatly appreciate it. We'll be back in two weeks with Annabelle. I'm looking forward to watching it and chatting about it and finding a guest. Until then, 